So today is a bit of an unusual day in terms of our series, only because today marks the ending of our Christ is King series, and simultaneously marks the beginning of our new series in the book of 2 Thessalonians. And you'll see why, because the text in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 is incredibly fitting for doing both. And so, we have been in our Christ is King series for some time now. We have looked at what does it mean for Jesus to reign supreme over everything in life? What does it mean for us as individuals? What does it mean for those of us who have families and have roles within those families? What does it mean for us as a church? What does it mean for us as citizens within a nation? What does it mean for all the peoples of the earth? What does it mean that Christ is king? And so today marks, again, the series conclusion where we will be looking specifically at the return of Jesus. We believe, it is necessary even to believe to be a Christian that one day Christ will return and he will inaugurate completely his kingdom. And so that's what we're looking at today. Also, if you remember before this series, this Christ is King series, we were in 1 Thessalonians. And so we were, we, you may not remember, but if you don't, maybe you should uh, look at some previous sermons on our website. We were in 1 Thessalonians. We're now ending this series, and we're going to jump back to the series of letters that Paul wrote to the church at Thessalonica. And so as we look at the coming of Jesus, his return, we're going to be doing two things today. We're going to be both looking at the specifics of this text, and then we're going to take a step back and look at the broad story arc of history, of all of history, that the scriptures testify to. And so I'm very excited to do that. Uh, I think it's necessary to do that to understand why Paul, the author of this letter, makes the assumptions that he does when writing to the Thessalonians. And this is a taste, if, if, um, if you're not familiar with the term biblical theology, it just means studying theology on the terms of the Bible. Conversely, some of you might look up topics, right? We might call that systematic theology, where you're like, what does the Bible say about marriage? And you go and you look at all the things that it says about marriage. But biblical theology, rather, is what does the Bible say about itself in terms of the themes that are central to its message? And so we're going to have a small little deep dive in that today. And that, I hope, is, exciting, is as exciting to you as it is me. So let's read the text, and then we will pray. 2 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to you, 
to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven, with his mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed, because our testimony to you was believed. Let us pray. Father, God of heaven and earth, holy are you and worthy are you of all worship, praise, and adoration. In mercy and compassion you saw fit to reveal yourself to us specifically showing us your heart in Christ your son and I pray today that you would be magnified among us that we would truly praise your name that we would in our hearts and minds exalt you because you are the one true God you are worthy of all glory, all honor, all might, and all power. And we trust your word. We believe that one day you will return to judge both the living and the dead. And so I pray now that your word would cut deep within, that it would have rule and reign in our midst, that, Spirit, you would come and search our hearts, and that you would... Reveal to us any wayward thinking that you would purify us and continue to sanctify us as your people and that we would see you for who you are, that we would behold you in your power and in your majesty, that you would receive the praise due your name. We trust your word and I pray that we would surrender ourselves to it today. Please move in our midst. Have your way among us. It's in your name I pray all these things, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. You know, there are some, some of them are even so-called ministers, that when asked about the apparent discrepancy, apparent discrepancy, between the old covenant and the new they say things of this sort. The message of Jesus was love, kindness, and acceptance. 
And he came to bring new revelation that lifts one up to a different kind of thinking so that vengeance and wrath have been done away with for all people at all times. That sort of thinking is prevalent. It's prevalent. It's a false gospel. It is not true. The God of the Old Testament is, cert is most certainly the God of the New Testament. And as we will see, he must judge the living and the dead. He must pour out man's deeds on their heads for him to be the righteous judge. If he doesn't, he is no just judge at all. And so in this letter, we will see the fruit of endurance and steadfastness is evidenced while the church, that is the people of God, are being persecuted and afflicted. And all of this is for something. All of this has a purpose. Paul has already been with the Thessalonian church. If you remember from the book of Acts, he was with them three Sabbaths and was received well. And then he continued on his missionary journey. But there were Jews that had been stirred up. And Jews had chased Paul uh, from town to town. And eventually he was stoned in Lystra because of the rabble-rousers that were chasing him across Macedonia. And he longed to stay with the church at Thessalonica. He was greatly encouraged by their faith in the midst of persecution. This is what we saw in 1 Thessalonians. He even indicates that they were being persecuted by their kinsmen, much like the Christians in Judea were being persecuted by the Jews. Because remember, the early Christians were Jews who had believed that Jesus is the Messiah. And so, as the second letter starts... He says in verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. In the last letter, Paul even says that the Thessalonians were his glory and joy. He took great pride and had much joy in the mark of faithfulness that this church had. And how does he know? How does he know that they were enduring well? How does he know that they were suffering under the hand of affliction well? Because their faith was growing abundantly and their love for one another was increasing. In the midst of persecution and affliction, the Thessalonians were steadfast and enduring. And to Paul, this was obvious because their faith was growing abundantly and their love for one another was increasing. So get this, despite, despite persecution and, hard, and affliction, despite hardship, they were actually growing in grace. They were actually growing in grace. Conversely, just gritting your teeth and bearing down is not faithful endurance. 
I say that as one who <laughs> some weeks doesn't even know how I'm going to get through for various reasons. And it feels like I'm just surviving. I'm just surviving. And I read this and I marvel that if I'm not growing in grace and if I'm not growing in love for the saints, then I'm not letting suffering, I'm not letting affliction do its work. Because this growth that was evident among the Thessalonians is the fruit of righteousness. It is the fruit of righteousness and it is evidence that they truly belong to Christ. This is how Paul knows they are saints because they're growing. This must serve as a reminder for us. It has to. It has to. We can't ignore this. That suffering is necessary. It's necessary and it is not to be despised. After being stoned in Lystra, like I mentioned earlier, Paul actually encourages the church with this. He says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Why? Why is it that we must suffer? He also writes, Paul also writes in Romans that if we want to reap the rewards of Christ, we also must suffer with him. It has to happen. There's no free ride. There's no free ride. Well, according to this text, we're going to see this. Suffering as a Christian accomplishes two things. I'm not saying it only accomplishes two things, but according to the text, we're going to see this. It accomplishes two things. One, suffering is the primary tool used by God for our sanctification. Okay? We know from Romans 5, suffering produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint, right? Suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, character produces hope, and hope does not disappoint because it's real, because our hope is in a person, Jesus. And so suffering, excuse me, suffering is a primary tool used by God for our sanctification in two, and we're going we're gonna to elaborate on this in light of Christ's return. So don't, don't not think we're not talking about the judgment, the glory of God in the judgment of the world. But two, suffering does this. Suffering at the hands of the unrighteous is a means by which wrath is stored up against them for the day of judgment. Suffering at the hands of the unrighteous is a means by which wrath is stored up against them for the day of judgment. This idea is not unique to Second Thessalonians. Paul mentions it in his previous letter to them, and he also mentions it in Romans, saying that those with hard and impenitent hearts are storing up wrath for the day of wrath. Those who continue in sin and rebellion are storing up wrath for themselves. This idea is replete within the entire narrative of the Scriptures. In fact, When, he, when the Lord called Abraham, he says, look, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send you to the promised land, but you're not, you're, your children won't inherit it until basically the, iniquities of the, the iniquity of the Amorites has been filled. Meaning the Lord, in his 
in his foreknowledge and in his understanding said, Abraham, I'm not going to send you, you and your offspring to the promised land just yet. You're going to have to suffer under Egypt first. That's going to be sanctification for you. But one of the reasons for which you're not going to enter yet is because the Amorites haven't sinned enough yet. I'm going to let them continue sinning that there might be due wrath for them when you go in and you conquer. This is the God of the Bible. This is the God of the Bible. He doesn't forget, but he lets wrath surmount. He lets iniquity build that he might inflict just punishment on the unrighteous. And so we're going to see that sanctification, in light of this text, achieves those two things. Excuse me, suffering. Suffering achieves those two things. Sanctification for the church, those who belong to God in Christ. And the storing up of wrath for the unrighteous. Okay. Verses 5 through 8. This is where we're going to start here in a moment to take our bird's eye view. Notice in verse 5, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What does he mean? In other words, He's saying your endurance and steadfastness amidst persecution is the fruit by which you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. Okay? Meaning, your belief in Christ and the fact that if you belong to him and he's given you his righteousness, it will bear fruit. And that fruit is endurance and steadfastness in the midst of persecution. And that fruit will then also, okay, be the evidence that God is just. So, I'm going to restate this chain of events. Your endurance, your steadfastness is fruit of your faithfulness. It's fruit that you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom of God. And that faithfulness is fruit that God's judgment is just that God's judgment is just. That sentence, even in, it, it's very confusing. I looked at it in the original language and it's difficult to know what the evidence is referring to. This is, and if you read several different English translations, it's, the two options are shared across popular translations. And so, to the best of my knowledge, what Paul is saying is that the endurance and steadfastness of the church is the evidence first of their faithfulness, and there in, in that faithfulness is the fruit that God's judgment is just. For he will count the righteous worthy, and he will repay the unrighteous for their evil deeds. This just judgment is specifically witnessed in God repaying with affliction those who afflict you. Some of you may recoil a little at that. Not me. 
if you know the scriptures well and you've read the Psalms, you understand the sentiment when the promise of God's justice is coming down on those who have been your enemies. This is for us. This is for us. I mean, look at this. In the New Testament, since, verse 6, since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you. And in doing so, he will grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us. We'll talk, we'll, we'll unpack that further or more later, later on. God is not blind to injustice. He's not blind to it. The psalmist writes in Psalm 140, I know, I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. I know it. I know it. And so the hope here right now for the Thessalonians and for us is that God's judgment is just and he will repay with affliction those who afflict us. To make sense of this, we have to ask the question, how then is our suffering evidence of our sanctification and God's just judgment? You might be thinking, why do we suffer in the here and now if he really is going to repay with affliction those who afflict us? Why? Why? How do we make sense of this, particularly in this perceived timeline that we're in? Here's where we're going to step back. And I want us to look at the drama of history, okay? By drama, I don't mean a soap opera, all right? I mean like the stage set, the playwright, okay? Here's the stage. In order to really understand the nature and necessity of God's judgments, we need to take a step back. And we need to look at the full picture of what I like to call God's divine drama. The story he's painting throughout all the cosmos. The point of everything. Because you have to consider this. God did not create the world and everything in it out of necessity. It was a free act from him. He did not have to do this. We have to know this. Or else we think we're deserved, we, we, we're owed something, right? Somehow, I'm here and I'm, I'm going to do what I want and the world owes me something. Or, you know, if you think some entity out there owes you whatever. That's just not true, okay? God created the world out of a free act because he chose to do so. Therefore, every bit of our existence is a gift, Every bit of it is a gift. He didn't have to do all this. But in that gift, in that choice that he made to create, he created everything with intent. What is his intent? This is the singular purpose for which God created all things his glory. His glory. It's the singular purpose for which he created everything. 
There is no other reason. All of creation was designed to marvel in gratitude at its maker and to praise him for his glory and grace. This is the refrain of the entire Bible. I, just for brevity, we're going to look at a reading from each major section of the Bible, the law, the writings, the prophets, the gospels, and the epistles. Just to give you a brief look at this refrain throughout the scriptures. In Numbers 14, 21, after Israel rebelled because they didn't want to go into the land, the Lord says this, but truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Then he goes on to punish those, he curses those who refuse to obey him. Okay, that's just one example. All the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. Psalm 46, 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Ezekiel 38, 23, representing the prophets. So I will show my greatness and my holiness and make myself known in the eyes of many nations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. And in John 17, Jesus himself says, I glorified you in his prayer to the Father. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. I glorified you on the earth. And then lastly, in Romans 1, Paul writes about Jesus, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring, for what? For what reason? To bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Paul became an apostle to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. The entire scriptures point to one refrain the glory of God among all the earth. This is the entire point of your life. And part of fulfilling this refrain, this, that, that means this repeated phrase, all right, it's a musical term. Part of fulfilling this refrain within this drama, this story arc, is the establishment of a people who belong to God for the express purpose of praising his name and glorifying him among the nations. I promise you we're getting to judgment as well, but you need, this, is, this is the groundwork. Part of fulfilling this refrain is setting apart a people, establishing a people for his namesake. And if we are those people, which we are in Christ, we cannot rightly magnify his name when we actively resist and rebel against him and his ways. Therefore, the people of God must be sanctified in order to appropriately exalt and glorify his name. Sanctification is the process of being set apart, being made holy. That's what holiness means, otherness. 
not like the rest. That's really what holiness is. So, the people of God must be sanctified in order to appropriately exalt and glorify His name. Put simply, sanctification is the separation of people from people. The separation of people from people. And here's where we see the connection between sanctification and judgment. There is no separation of peoples if there, first, if there isn't first a judge who judges. Because it's the judge who determines who is who. Do you see that? In order for us to have a standard of sanctification, there must be a judge. Because it is that judge's judgment in determining who is who. Who is who. Therefore, sanctification and judgment are inextricably linked. Are inextricably linked. And this is, again, part of the entire narrative of God's glory among the nation. It's Him establishing a people for His name's sake. And so, again, representing the law, the prophets, the writings, the prophets in the New Testament, listen to this. In light of Him making a people distinct, Listen to this, Deuteronomy 7, 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Psalm thirty-three, twelve: Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen as his heritage. Malachi three sixteen through 18, I love this one. Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. The Lord paid attention and heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. And I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between one who serves God and one who does not serve Him. Philippians 2.15, Paul's charging the church at Philippi to be holy, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. And so I hope you're seeing this bird's eye view of the entire purpose of God creating the world, the entire purpose of Him establishing a people that belong to Him, because at every step of the way, it's all for Him. It's all for Him. Over and over and over and over again in the Scriptures, we see that the Lord sanctifies His people that the nations might look on and know that the Lord is God. This is the whole point. Therefore, there is judgment in our midst. There is judgment now because he's actively separating the righteous from the wicked. But then there is a final judgment to come in which the separation will be complete. This is also why suffering 
and the subsequent endurance of the righteous actually serves as evidence that wrath will one day be poured out on the wicked. The reformer, John Calvin, in commenting specifically on this text, says this. Paul, however, declares on the other hand that as God thus spares the wicked for a time and winks at the injuries inflicted upon his people, his judgment to come is shown us as in a mirror. For Paul takes for granted that it cannot but be that God, inasmuch as he is a just judge, will one day restore peace to the miserable who are now unjustly harassed and will pay to the oppressors of the pious the reward that they have merited. Hence, if we hold this principle of faith that God is the just judge of the world and that it is his office to render to everyone a recompense according to his works, this second principle will follow incontrovertibly, that the present disorderly state of matters is a demonstration of the judgment which does not yet appear. For if God is the righteous judge of the world, those things that are now confused must, of necessity, be restored to order. To summarize what he's saying, the suffering that we now experience is meant to serve as sanctification, as we've already discovered, and certainly as a vehicle by which wrath is stored up for the unrighteous, but also as a way to stir our hope and faith because it teaches us to long even more for the judgment to come. It teaches us to hope in the return of Christ. And so for the sake of clarity, for the sake of clarity, we have to ask the question, who are the righteous? And who are the wicked? Well, the righteous are those that are being sanctified and have been sanctified. It's an already but not yet reality. It's if we belong to God in Christ, we have been sanctified. We have been set apart. But our sanctification also continues as we are being transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next. But specifically, for the sake of clarity, Paul makes the case in Romans, and I want us to just know this, that the righteousness of God has been revealed apart from the law. That it is a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. It is a righteousness that comes through faith in Christ. Therefore, those who believe in their heart that Jesus raised from the dead and confess with their tongues that he is Lord. It is to that person, it is to that person that is given the gift of righteousness, the gift of salvation. It is that person that will be saved. Through faith in Christ, we are made righteous on account of Christ. And in him, we know God and we obey the gospel. That's important to remember. In Christ, we know God and we obey the gospel. If that's the righteous, who then are the wicked? Well, our text tells us in verse 8, in flaming fire, Christ will inflict vengeance on those who do not know God 
and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Jesus, who we declare in faith to be the Son of God and the Christ, that is the anointed one, the sent one, we declare that he will one day return to judge both the living and the dead. That everything will be revealed. Every word spoken, every deed done, every thought fought. And the wicked will be punished. John, the apostle, in the book of Revelation... He saw visions given to him, and I want to read two of them. At the start of his letter, in Revelation 1, it says this, Then I turned, whatever, whatever you got to do to concentrate on this, do that. Maybe it's close your eyes, I don't know. But listen, and behold, behold Christ. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And again in Revelation 19, John writes, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come! Gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two, that is the beast and the false prophet, 
were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. The author of Hebrews says it is a scary thing to fall into the hands of God Almighty. That he is a consuming fire and that vengeance belongs to him. Those who were slain by his sword and that were crushed in the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God are the very same who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Verse 9. They, that is the unrighteous, will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. Indeed, the wicked will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. I want us to think for a moment what this means. Consider what Paul means by these words. This is how weighty judgment is. Look at this. Their punishment is them being removed from the very source of their life and purpose. Backtrack just a moment, and we saw that the entire purpose of creation was to glorify God. Therefore, every single person was created with that purpose. And if they continue to refuse him and to deny the son whom he has sent and to reject the gospel, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction. Because that destruction is them being removed from the very presence of God who is their life. Do you see that? The one for whom they were made, they have rejected to the point where he says, now I reject you. Away from me. Away from me. Mankind in particular has been made in the image of God. So we have the highest honor and the weightiest charge to exalt God and to make him known in all that we do. But the wicked have continually refused him. They have continually disobeyed him. They have rejected his rule, his reign, and the gospel of Jesus the Christ. Therefore, their punishment is complete separation. Paul says to the Athenians that in God we live and move and have our being. Right? If you remember that from Acts In him we live and move and have our being. 
Thus, their punishment is to be removed from the one in whom they live and move and have their being. They are undone. They are undone. It is like being destroyed. Furthermore, for, furthermore, and this is important. This is what we're going to spend some time on. For righteousness to be established, lawlessness must be destroyed. Okay? Look at, look at both of these two sections. Okay, in verses 6 and 7, right, we saw that indeed God considers it just, okay, so this is God's judgment, to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you, okay? So one act, two results, the judgment, the wrath of the, the wicked and the relief of the saints, the relief of the righteous. And again, in verses 9 and 10, they, that is the the unrighteous will suffer the wick, the punishment of eternal destruction. And then jump down to verse 10. When he comes in on that day to be glorified in his saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. So this is what we see. The destruction of the wicked and the victory of Christ over all that is evil is the same act as the salvation and victory of the saints. The destruction of the wicked, the salvation of the righteous, it's the same act. It's the same act. Because in the victory of Christ, not only will he establish righteousness, but he will establish the righteous. This is why, again, the salvation of the righteous and the condemnation of the wicked happens in the very same act. This is a pattern throughout Scripture. We see this in the flood. Noah and his family are spared while the rest of the world is punished. One act, and only the family of God survives. The rest are destroyed. Lot is rescued from Sodom while Sodom is destroyed by sulfur and fire. Israel is saved through the Red Sea, but Egypt is crushed in the Red Sea. Israel is conquering the peoples that once inhabited the promised land, and it is judgment on those nations. And then we can read the imprecatory psalms. Imprecation is cursing, okay? There's lots of psalms where the psalmist is asking God to curse the wicked. And then again, God's judgment on Israel's enemies later in the, mon in the monarchic period. And then finally, finally, in the very crucifixion of Jesus, we see in one act, his crucifixion, the salvation made available for the righteous and judgment of the world. We know this because Jesus says so himself in John 12, that his death is the judgment of the world. Because in his death on a cross, we see that is what it took to pay for sin. All who refuse him will be judged because that act has been performed. That's the standard. And if you refuse him, if you disobey the gospel, there only judgment remains. Only fury remains. Therefore, on that day when the wicked are destroyed, Christ will be glorified among all the saints. And we will marvel at the glory and magnificence of his return. 
because we have believed on him. As in conclusion, there's just a few things I think that are helpful charges for us in light of this. First is that, well, this, it's been given to us to wait expectantly for that day. It has been given to the church to wait expectantly for that day. We must walk fearfully because he will render judgment unto all and he is a just, just judge who is impartial. It is still right and appropriate to walk in fear before the Lord because he is God and we are not. It is entirely appropriate as those who belong to him in Christ to walk humbly before him in fear. But also, we must live joyfully because we know that he will repay with affliction those who have afflicted us, that our suffering at the hands of evil is not in vain. It has a purpose. It will be used. And finally, like the Thessalonians, we must remain steadfast in the midst of affliction, growing in faith and increasing in love for one another, all of which accords with the holiness of Christ. On that glorious day, we will see the consummation of all of history. All of history. Everything will come to its final place. Everything will be seen in light for what it really is. And all of history will in one moment be pointing to Christ the King. The kingdom of God will be established and revealed in its entirety. And Jesus Christ will be exalted before all as the King of the earth. And I want to close on reading Psalm, Psalm 9. I can just imagine the church at Thessalonica singing this psalm, singing it as a prayer. Remember, the early church, the, the New Testament was actively being written. So the songs of the church were the psalms. Their Bible was the Old Testament. And I can just imagine given their affliction, given their persecution and their faithful endurance, them singing this psalm. And so I'll close with this. I will give thanks to the Lord with my whole heart. I will recount all of your wonderful deeds. I will be glad and exult in you. I will sing praise to your name, O Most High. When my enemies turn back, they stumble and perish before your presence. For you have maintained my just cause. You have sat on the throne, giving righteous judgment. You have rebuked the nations. You have made the wicked perish. You have blotted out their name forever and ever. The enemy came to an end in everlasting ruins. Their cities you rooted out. The very memory of them has perished. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for justice. And he judges the world with righteousness. He judges the peoples with uprightness. The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. And those who know your name put their trust in you. For you, O Lord, 
have not forsaken those who seek you. Sing praises to the Lord who sits enthroned in Zion. Tell among the peoples his deeds, for he who avenges blood is mindful of them. He does not forget the cry of the afflicted. Be gracious to me, O Lord. See my affliction from those who hate me. O you who lift me up from the gates of death, that I may recount all your praises, that in the gates of the daughter of Zion I may rejoice in your salvation. The nations have sunk in the pit that they have made. In the net that they hid, their own feet has been caught. Their own foot has been caught. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed judgment. The wicked are snared in the work of their own hands. The wicked shall return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy shall not always be forgotten, and the hope of the poor shall not perish forever. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged before you. Put them in fear, O Lord. Let the nations show, excuse me, let the nations know that they are but men. Let's pray. Worthy are you, Lord God Almighty, for you in strength, in power, in wisdom, and in might have established the world and all that is in it. You are God. You sit in the heavens and you do what you want. There is none like you. None like you. And we worship you. Would you humble our hearts and our minds before you? Would we ascribe to you the glory due your name? And I pray that in Christ, we would truly see you for who you are. I pray now for those that belong to you. Would you grow us in grace? Would we experience your peace and your love in the midst of affliction, in the midst of pain, in the midst of hardship? Would your just judgments be evident to us and would we endure faithfully because you were just and if we have friends in the room who do not know you I pray that you would convict them of their sin that they would see their unrighteousness before you and that you would bring them to a place of repentance and belief that they might be on the merciful side of your judgments Please, would you rule and reign in our midst? Would you have your way among us? You are the Lord. There is none like you. We pray all of this according to the grace and peace that is ours in Jesus the Christ. Amen.